good morning. It is truly a pleasure to be here this morning. Very thankful to see each and every one of you here on a day where it is so bitterly cold and, and such bad weather we've had over the last several hours with all the snow that has fallen and the roads have been slick. Uh, but it is very encouraging to be here, to be gathered as we studied this morning about love and, and the warmth that we feel for one another as we see one another uh, and, and the encouragement that we get from that, but also the dedication that we see from one another to brave, bad, uh, bad weather and the elements to gather together and study from God's Word and give the glory and honor and praise to Him that He so rightfully deserves. I want to spend some time this morning, if you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles out, we're going to be uh, looking at several passages and I'll be flipping around quite a bit this morning uh, as we consider uh, something that, that maybe you, you've wondered about in, in the past and something that I know I've, I have seen before in Christians. Uh, have you ever wondered if, there, if, if the temptation is there, if there are those who have been a Christian for a while, maybe they have uh, in, the, in their time as a Christian, they have been fruitful. They have helped bring many to Christ. They have uh, exhibited the fruits of the Spirit, and they have, have been an example and encouragement to others. And after a while, they begin to kind of have this, this attitude about them. You kind of start to see that in, uh, in their lives. Uh, I've noticed this. I've definitely seen this in the lives of many Christians, Christians that I uh, hold a, a great respect for and a love for. And the more I've seen that and the more I've noticed that, I've begun to understand that I believe that's exactly what we need to be striving for. We need to be striving to have a Christian attitude. And it should be something that is visible in our lives and is visible to those that are around us. Because as Christians work together, when they work in a local congregation, uh, right attitudes are necessary. Uh, all the talent in the world. You could take all the, 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 the Christians in the world with, with amazing talents uh, to, to lead singing and prayers and to serve and, and to do so many things, but with the wrong attitude, those talents, they are, they are not going to make up for the, the lack of the correct attitude in the life of that congregation. With the right attitude, our efforts and service to the Lord and our efforts and service to one another are, are enhanced to their full potential. What areas should we be concerned about? That's what I want to look at this morning. Some areas where our Christian attitude needs to really reflect to its full potential and to shine to those around us and to God. And that's where we'll begin looking at this morning and our attitude towards God. Turn over to Matthew chapter 22. Looked at this passage a little bit in during class this morning. In Matthew chapter 22 verse 37, we see where we should begin with our attitude towards God, and that is with love. When the the Pharisees, uh, we start in verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments have, have all the law and the prophets. Now, we talked about in class this morning how just simply by answering that question, Jesus confirmed the, the importance of this commandments and the hierarchy that are found in his commandments. This commandment is greater than the other commandments. And the reason why is because if we don't have this attitude first and foremost towards God, then we are not going to have an attitude towards anyone else. It's not going to prompt us to move any farther outside of our lives if we don't first start with loving God with the very fiber of our beings. We have to have that right kind of attitude towards Him. And we need to ask ourselves, is my love for God described as a love that flows from my heart and my soul and my mind? Is it from my very strength that I give this love to God? That's where our attitude needs to begin. And we talked about how that is greater than faith and than in hope. But we also see that, that doesn't con uh, it doesn't dissuade us from having those attitudes as well. We must trust in the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us what faith is, telling us it is a, a, a strong conviction uh, or a trust in things that we cannot see. But notice what Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 goes on to tell us about faith. It says, without it, without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those 
who diligently seek Him. So do we have the kind of faith which pleases God? If not, Romans 10 verse 17 tells us how to receive that faith. The faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. We need to spend time in His Word. If we don't have the faith and the trust that is pleasing to Him, then we need to build that up. We also need to see that if we love God and we are faithful and trusting of God, that that should produce another kind of attitude in our lives towards God, and that is an attitude of thankfulness. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 and verse 17. Here, Paul writes to the Colossians saying, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We need to have this gratitude that is, that is just planted in our heart and it just swells there and grows and it's not going anywhere. We're not going to give that away because our circumstances have, have risen that just make things seem like I, I could never be thankful for the circumstances that are in. We need to see that it is in everything that we do, we are giving thanks to God. Over in the Ephesian letter, Ephesians chapter 5. There in verse 20, it says, Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul saying these words, he experienced a lot of stuff, stuff that me and you, we're probably never going to experience. I don't think I need to ask for a show of hands to ask how many people have been shipwrecked, how many people have been deserted on an island, how many people have been bit by a snake. Well, Holly can raise her hand on that one. I'll pick on her since we're calling today Holly, pick on Holly Day. But how many people have experienced these things? And yet Paul says, give thanks always. And in all things, give thanks to God. That needs to be the attitude flowing out of the heart of the Christian. In fact, Romans tells us that it is without this, without that attitude, without thanksgiving in our hearts that brings on God's righteous indignation on those who are unthankful. Look at Romans 1 and verses 18 through 21, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are, that are made, even, so, or even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Why are they without excuse? Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is what comes from us. When we don't have an attitude towards God that reflects our love towards him, a love that flows from the very fiber of our being, our faith, our trust in him, our thankfulness, our lives become futile. They become, they become darkened. And they become foolish. And we can see that in the lives of so many people. Uh, there was a man the other day that, that uh, we have a, a relationship with and, and just is so grumpy and it never seems to be happy. And he came in the other day and was talking to one of, uh, of our, our relatives and, and he saw a, a Bible verse or some reason. And he said, he said, you surely don't believe that book. You surely don't believe that. And it became very obvious why this man is so grumpy, why his, his life is, is, it has no happiness in it. It's because he is not thankful. He doesn't have a trust in God. He doesn't have a love for God. And that's what that produces in our lives, the ability to be truly blessed, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 1. If our relationship with God is right, it increases the likelihood then that our relationship with others will be right and smooth as well. So what also helps us, after having a proper attitude towards God, it also helps us to have a proper attitude then towards ourselves. And to begin that look, we need to see that it starts first with having a humble attitude towards ourselves. Over in Romans 12, just a few, a few chapters over from where we just read, Romans 12 and in verse 3, Paul says, For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. A humble estimation of yourself is very important. Not to walk around thinking that, that I am the, the next greatest thing, and who better to really have that thought in their mind than Paul? When we stop to think about who Paul was, as he describes himself in, in, in various places throughout the book of Acts, he talks about how 
great a, a, a person he was in the eyes of those around him. He was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee and a strict Pharisee. He had trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He was the up-and-coming superstar of, of the Jewish faith, if you will. He had so much going for him, and yet he's telling people now, he says, that's not, the, that's not the attitudes that we have. We don't have attitudes about ourselves like that. We need to humbly estimate our, our own worth. And certainly that involves seeing the worth that we have. But we need to look at ourselves in a worthy manner. And he says in verse 16, Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Humility includes, that includes the way we view ourselves, but also includes the way that we act. The way, that we, the way that we walk each and every day. To be willing to serve others is a great way to, to remind ourselves of, of our lowliness and to humble ourselves. Look at John chapter 13. There's an excellent example here uh, of, of the willingness to serve and the, the actions of humility seen in Jesus. In verse 6, John chapter 13 verse 6 says, Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hand, hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed only needs to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean." So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you. If you do them, Jesus was setting a precedent here, a precedent that was unlike anything they had seen. The son of God, the, the, the Christ, the anointed one come from heaven was bowing at their feet to cleanse the dirt off of them. This was mind blowing. This is not done. Kings do not wash their servants feet. And yet, while Jesus wasn't setting up a a, a perpetual command, as, as some have read this, to, we, we need to have a, a special ceremony to wash our feet. Jesus was setting up a precedent to say we need to have the humility that every day we lower ourselves to serve those who are around us. That's what Jesus did for his disciples. I'm reminded of a quote by a man, Lawrence Bell. He said, show me a man who cannot bother to do the little things, and I'll show you a man who cannot be trusted to do the big things. I wonder where he got that idea from. I don't know for certain, but it sounds very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew 25, verse 21, as he talked about those, uh, about those who are faithful in a little. He said in Matthew 25, verse 21, And the Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of our Lord. We see the importance then that humility plays. That even in the small things, even in the lowly things, that is not beneath us. That is something that we will lower ourselves down to and be thankful to do so. Are we humble enough to serve our fellow brothers? That starts with having the humility towards ourselves. We also need to see the, have an attitude towards ourselves that makes us teachable. Flip back over to the Old Testament for a minute. Let's look in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs 15 verse 31. Here it says, "The ear that hears the rebuke of life will abide among the wise." The ear that hears the rebuke of life will abide, will live amongst the wise. The proverb writer showed that being teachable, being one that can hear instruction and can turn from, from either an error or their way or turn towards a righteousness, one that will hear and will be taught is one who is wise. Teachability includes an eagerness to learn. Someone who is looking to know more, not looking to say, I'm, I'm happy where I am. I don't, I don't want to come out of my ways. I'm just going to stay where I'm at. They are eager to learn. They're eager to grow. And they have the ability to learn from correction, 
to profit from advice and to profit from criticism. Sometimes we hear criticism and, and, and it's so easy, so easy just to flip that switch and say, oh, oh criticism's coming my way. It's time for me to throw up the, the shields. I've got I to gotta become defensive. But the proverb writer says to hear that criticism and to, to learn from it makes one truly wise. Another man, Elton Trueblood. Elton Trueblood said, education is too good to limit to the young. You see, we take this idea of teachability and we love to apply it to our children, to the youth, to the people around us who, uh, or to the children around us say, you, gotta, you need to be able to go to school and while you're there, you need to listen to your teachers. You need to have an open mind to, to learn. And that isn't something that stops when we get out of grade school or, or high school or even out of college. That's something that we need to take with us throughout our lives, that we are open to learn. Learn whenever someone is bringing us uh, a truth, whenever someone is helping us to grow closer to God. We need to be able to be teachable in those moments. So how teachable are we when the opportunities come to study from God's Word? That's another attitude that we need to have towards ourselves and then lastly, we need to see this attitude here, honesty towards our mistakes. In James chapter 5, verse 16, we read about confessing our sins. And so this honesty towards our mistakes, it includes the willingness to admit, to admit when we have, when we have sinned, and the willingness to correct those things, to repent from them. Everyone, everyone makes mistakes. I guarantee you, you look around, you, maybe you, you're on vacation or you visited some area congregations or you know, you know of a congregation somewhere and everything looks so good. You see that they are doing great things in, their, in, in, their, in the community to help evangelize the lost. They're doing great things together as a congregation, gathering in one another's homes and, and lifting one another up through study and, and through encouraging one another and just being there and helping one another. And you see this say, look at the great things that are going in that congregation. And you know what, that's gonna, what I'm going to be able to show you about that congregation? That is not a congregation that is, going, that is doing things perfectly. That is a congregation that has made mistakes and has learned from them. That has seen things done and went, okay, we can't do that again. We need to go this route. We need to, to draw closer to God in this way. They have made mistakes, but they have learned. We need to have the same attitude. We need to, we need to if, if we are functioning well, we, we need to be one that makes a, a mistake or sees an error, but grows from it and feels a, the other people around them to do the same, to grow closer towards God in light of the errors that we have made. To be teachable is, is the idea of, of looking at even the mistakes that others have made. Sometimes we have this attitude that says, well, you know, if I, if, if I do it wrong, well, then I'll learn then. I'll learn from that mistake. I remember in, in high school, that was mom and dad, don't do this, don't do that. I said, why? It looks like so much fun. And I said, well, because we, we've already went down that road, and we already know the outcome. And it's very tempting to say, well, I want to go down that road too, and I'll just learn if it's not that good for me. We need to have the attitude, honesty towards our mistakes, but honesty towards the mistakes of others. Those two go hand in hand with that teachability to see that they're, if they're being honest towards their mistakes, we can learn from them as well. These attitudes of humility, teachability, and honesty, they prepare us to be useful to the Lord. And they will also have a bearing on our relationship with others in the congregation. Let's, attend, let's put our attention now on the attitude that we need to have towards our brethren. And we started off with this attitude towards God, and we're going to have this attitude towards our brethren as well, and that is of love. We looked in John chapter 13 when we saw the humility that Jesus showed as he served those around him, his, his disciples. But then in verse 34, talking of that, of that experience that they, that they in, in, in encountered and the teaching that he taught them there, he says in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that if you love one another as I have loved you, or that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have loved for one another. Jesus taught this as a necessity. This isn't something that, that he suggested. It would be nice. It would be nice if the, if, if the people of my church loved one another. In fact, he was saying, as we've talked about in our class, this is a test for us. It's not that it would be nice. If you don't love one another, then you are not of me. And the world will see that. If you have loved one another, they will see that you are my followers, that you are my disciples. So if we truly love one another, then how can we not work together? 
How can we not be, be more a, a part of one another? How can we not lift up one another? And so we see then that that's an attitude that is needed first and foremost when we consider that uh, of our attitudes towards our brethren. The second attitude I want to look at is cooperation. This involves the willingness for us to, to work together as God intended. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 21, it says, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. They need to work together for the body to be considered whole and the body to be considered healthy. Those things are working with one another. As, the, as we walk down the street, the eye doesn't just decide, you know what, I'm going to blind it myself. I'm going to close my eyes and expect the foot to get where it's going. As the eye looks down the street and says, that's where I want to go, the foot says, no, I'm going to plant myself here and I'm not moving. We're not, the, the body will not be in cooperation. It is not working as it is intended. But God intended His body. The church that belongs to His Son, to the, the church of Christ, He intended for it to work with cooperation, to work together with willingness. And so we need to not be able to, to work alone. We need to be willing to work together. And certainly that involves... I love this story that, that Gary Sandusky sometimes tells of, of two men, and they were uh, it was him and a, another brother, and they were digging a, 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 a ditch, maybe a water line, and they were out there with their shovels, and, and he as he was digging up that dirt, and he went to swing it, and he, he clocked the other guy right in the back of the head with that shovel. As he come around, and he hit him around the back of the head, and, and he said he got a little nervous. This, this brother was known to sometimes be a, a bit of a hothead. He'd get a little angry sometimes, and he thought, oh, man, Oh, what's this guy going to say to me? And the guy didn't seem to, to mind at all, though. He just kept right on working. And he said, Brother, I sure am sorry. But I hit you in the back of the head. And the guy turned around and said, Don't you know? Don't you know when, when, you, when two men are working in such close proximity to one another, you're going to bump into one another every now and then? He thought that's a great example. And that's what God is talking about whenever, and what Paul, excuse me, is talking about in, in, in the Corinthian letter. For those that are working together, the eye and the foot don't say I have no use for you, but you work together. And yes, that involves sometimes rubbing shoulders and bumping into one another. And things aren't always going to go the way that you think, well, this is the way it should go. But it's called cooperation, the willingness to work together. And where there's cooperation, then what I want us to know is that a good way of doing things will be more productive than a better way of doing things. We might look around and see someone that's doing something. We go, that's the way we need to be working. We look and see another congregation's outreach, the way they're working in the public. We say, we need, we need to be doing that. That's a better thing than what we are doing. And it might be true. But working together can make the good that we are doing more productive than going we need to, what we're doing is good, but we need to stop and we need to do this. We need to be able to cooperate. We need to be able to see that when we work together, the good is more productive. We also need to see an appreciation for others, an appreciation for the work that they do. In 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 14, it says, I thank God, I thank God that I baptized none of you except, for Chris, except Crispus and Gaius. We need to see that, that Paul, he was seeing he was seeing the work that others were doing, and he was thankful for that. He wasn't the one that is baptizing all of the people in Corinth. Something else, somebody else was doing that work, and he noticed that. Now, certainly in the in the context of what he was talking about here, he had a he was rebuking them for some attitudes. But Paul noticed he saw that someone else had done this work in Corinth over in in First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians five. Look here in verse 12. Verse Thessalonians 5, 12, he says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And in verse 13, And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. You know, whenever we talk about church discipline, a word that we like to bring up, a word that gets a lot of attention is that word to mark. It is the idea of taking notice, of, of letting the congregation know uh, identifying a person who is living in sin, who is walking unrighteously, who is away from the Lord. But you know what Paul says here? He says there's an opposite to that. We focus on that word mark and we look at it and say, well, that's, that's something that we do for people that are doing things that are wrong. But Paul is saying here in verse 12, he says, I want you to recognize, I want you to identify, I want you to notice those who are laboring among you 
and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. He wants to say, I want you to see these people who are at work. I want you to see the people who are, who are striving to do what's right in my name's sake. I want you to see the people who are trying to lift you up and also the people that are, that are leading over you and also the people that are even trying to teach you. But I want you to see people who are working. We need to appreciate that when we see that in others. We need uh, to, to not just, this is one, sometimes what we like to do is we like to look at things and we, we immediately start kind of nitpicking. What they're doing isn't the way that I would do it. And see, true appreciation doesn't do that. And see, true appreciation for others eliminates destructive criticisms. If we look at somebody's work and we say, wow, I, I see what you're doing there and, and you know what, I... That's not the way I would have done that. I think you need to do it like this, or I think you did a bad job at that. Well, what, we have, what we're doing is we're seeing, but we're not appreciating. We're not thankful. We're not loving them in the sense that we, we recognize the work that they have done, and we want that work to, we want them to be encouraged and to be built up. We're not going to gossip about them. We're not going to be divisive. We're not going to try to divide ourselves because we don't appreciate the way they are doing things. In fact, appreciation, some have, have, have said before, appreciation is kind of like the grease that is on the gears. When those gears are working, are, are spinning, and, and, and they come together, and you've seen a gear sometimes that those teeth come together, and they don't just match up just right. And boy, everything come to a, a standstill when those, when those gears do that. Um, but when you have grease on there, when you have the oil and the lubrication that is needed, and they come together and they slip and go right into place, appreciation can help us to do that. To see the work that I'm doing and the work that my brother or my sister is doing and to appreciate them and allow those works to come together, to build up the whole, to make us drawn closer to God and to help us to shine that light to the community around us. We need to be able to appreciate them. That also means if we're going to be appreciating them, we're going to work with cooperation, we're going to love them, it also means that we need to be able to submit to them. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 before we get in uh, before Ephesians 5 gets into all this discussion about the role of husband and of wife and the relationships that they have with one another it says this word in verse 21 tells us to submit to one another in the fear of God. We are to submit to one another. That, that means that we are to look to one another and we are to look to one another in such a way that we are willing to follow. We are willing to be led. Now, certainly, we, we, we don't see the idea here, as we talked about uh, in class this morning, that we, we do need to, to test ourselves, and we need to test the spirits around us. And if they are not from God, we certainly aren't just going to follow blindly that. But everything doesn't have to be the Kyle Blevins show when it comes to the Lake Street Church of Christ. Or t well, today, we'll, we're going to pick on Carl. It doesn't have to be the Carl Harper show. I've I seen him smiling. What we need to understand is that we need to be able to submit to one another in this. Hebrews chapter 13 makes this very specific. It says to submit to our elders. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, to submit to those that lead us, says, Obey those who rule over you. Be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. It talks about the relationship that, that a, a congregation should have with the elders, the leaders of that congregation that are striving to, to help them, to draw them uh, along this path closer to God and walking towards that eternal life with Him. Now here at Lake Street, we, we don't currently have elders. And I hope that we do someday. And I hope that that's a desire of your all's, that someday this congregation be be drawn up and, and, and be organized in the way that God had intended through his word, that we have those who are leading us, that are shepherding this congregation in that way. I hope that in, in making it my goal to, to help myself and those around me to, that, that, are, that will be one day qualified for that, to be pressing themselves towards that, and I hope that will be your goal, to push people toward that, that will one day be qualified for that, to make the decisions today to do that. But currently... Look, this congregation here is led not by an eldership, but by the decisions of the men here. It is the form, uh, in the form of the men of the congregation. And so we need to, in, in this sense, we need to submit to that. Whenever we make decisions as the men, we, we can't, as the men, go, well, I'm going to just do what I want to do, or I'm going to do what I want to do. And as the congregation as a whole, I'm just going to, I'm going to go in my own way. We need, to, we need to, to submit to one another. We need to submit to the leadership that is, that is trying to draw this, this congregation, this church, 
closer spiritually to what it needs to be. And I see that in all of our men's meetings, that that is something that we all desire here and that is something that the men desire here to see us drawn closer to God. So if we don't like something, if there's something that is going on and we think, well, that's not how I would have done it. That's not the way I want to do things. Submissiveness doesn't mean that we just have to sit back and be quiet and you're on for the ride and you just hang on tight and it doesn't matter what you think. That's not what submissiveness is talking about. If we see things going on that we, we don't think that's the way that, that we would do it and we would like to see things done different, we, we speak up, we talk about that. But at the end of the day, when, when the congregation is moving in this direction and it is a direction that is right, it is a direction that is pleasing to God, then we submit to that. And we're going to walk in that direction as well. Yeah, it carries with it the idea that if there's too many chiefs, you maybe heard that phrase before, if there's too many chiefs and there's not enough Indians, that car, that 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 reservation that that group of people are not going to 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 function in the way that they they would function best. You have too many co- uh, cooks in the kitchen, you're going to have problems. The same is true in the organization of God's church. If everyone is trying to say I'm going to do things my way and I want you to follow me, then we're going to run into trouble. We need to be submissive to one another. We also need to be hospitable to one another. Romans 12, verse 13 tells us that, that Christians Christians are to be described as hospitable. When someone describes us, they, that should be a way in which they would describe us individually as hospitable. It says in Romans 12, verse 13, that the, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. That was something that described the saints in that day. They were given to hospitality. But we also understand that this includes hospitality to the brethren and hospitality to strangers. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2 alludes to the fact that some, in, in being hospitable, have, have served and have entertained angels. Certainly that should draw to, to mind an Old Testament passage uh, speaking of Abraham and Sarah as they entertained angels and, and didn't know it. But 1 Peter 4 and verse 9 really tells us a lot about the ways in which we are to be hospitable, about the attitude that we should have towards hospitality. In 1 Peter chapter, <clears throat> chapter 4, it says that there in verse 9, Be hospitable to one another and complain and drag your feet and, and just shake your fist at, and, and, and for having to do so. It says be hospitable without grumbling. It is a pleasure to you. It is a joy to you to be able to be hospitable to another, to those that you see that are in need. We need to be those who are given to that. That is, that when we see a need, we are given, or it is a given, that we are going to try to meet that need, if, if at all possible. In fact, that's a factor in the spread of the, uh, of the church of the first century, was that there was hospitality extended by the Christians. Look at 3 John for a moment. Verses 5 through 8 said, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. The early church was involved in that. That was part of the reason the early church spread. As we've been talking about on Wednesday night in the Revelation class, that, that as, as Rome was trying to, to stamp out Christianity and, and Christians are being rounded up and they're being thrown into the Colosseum and they're being set on, on fire and they're being murdered, what are they doing during that time? They are being hospitable even to the Romans who are, are breathing so much hate for them. They still continue to be marked, to be given to hospitality. Express, uh, th- this idea of hospitality is what helped the church grow in the first century. It is what will continue to help the church grow today. Another attitude we need to have is warmth, this, this idea of friendliness and openness. And you can see this expressed in the, in the first century church. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 47. You get the idea that these guys, they didn't want to have anything to do with one another. That they just couldn't stay in the sight of one another, don't you? Because he says what they were doing there, they were, they were t- taking all their stuff and they were going home. I'm going to take my ball and I'm going to play at my house. No. Verse 44 says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among us, 
um, among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one another in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You know, I've often remarked that if we were able to go back in time, I'm not convinced we, we would find we would find any church resembling what we have today in the 21st century. It would look very foreign to us because of many things. Certainly they, they would have, have spoke a different language and the, the, even the forming of their songs was much different than the forming of songs we have now. But this attitude that they had in Acts chapter 2, it's unlike an attitude that we have very often in our day today. They spent time with one another constantly. They loved being around one another. It almost seems as if they couldn't be kept apart. They, had, they had, were together and had all things in common. They looked out for one another. They took care of one another, and they, they just loved to spend this time. They were sharing in meals and in, in daily Bible study. And, and when you saw one, you saw the other. That seems to be the attitude that we saw in Acts chapter 2. In verse 44, in the beginnings uh, the, the, of the growth of, of, the, of the Lord's kingdom, of His church, we saw people who wanted friendliness, who wanted to have companionship in this, in, in this life, and we saw it through their openness to, towards one another. And we saw that it didn't just end at Jerusalem. Because we know around Acts chapter 8 that they were spread out throughout all the world. In Acts chapter 11, we read that in Antioch, this same thing was continuing on. In verse 27, Acts chapter 11, verse 27, said, In these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the, by the, uh, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. They were still... This idea of openness, of wanting to, to give to one another and to be a part of one another and to help one another. And we need to have this attitude towards our brethren, a desire to be friends with our brethren. You know, some people have said before, well, I just, I don't know, I, I don't know if I can worship there where, where so-and-so goes. I don't know if I can be a part of, of this where, where, where sister or brother so-and-so is at. Do we really think with an attitude like that that we're even going to, going to enjoy heaven? Is, is heaven something that we feel like we could really look forward to because we, we have differences with our brother or sister? I, I, don't, I just don't think I can be around them. That's what we're going to be with for eternity in heaven. Now, mind it, with that attitude, I sometimes question whether or not we will have that hope of that eternity in heaven. But still, while we have this time today, while we are amongst the, the, the living and we are in the, the kingdom of the God today in the church, we need to have this attitude of desiring these relationships with our brethren. We also need to have the attitude of gentleness. In Galatians chapter 6, in verse 1, we read probably one of the most well-known verses about, about gentleness. Galatians 6, verse 1 talks about how we are to, to respond to those who are in error. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. This is a way in which we are to deal with those who spiritually are weak. But you know what? That's also a way that Paul tells us to deal with those, maybe who are not spiritually weak, maybe those who just completely oppose us. Look over in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 says, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach and patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. That means that even those, certainly those that are amongst our number, those who have been overtaken, it carries with the idea that they didn't just they didn't just march off in defiance. They're trying to walk uh, the, the the path of righteousness, but Satan has tempted them, and they have given way to that temptation. And we need to be gentle as we go and try to draw them back to the truth and away from the snares of the devil. 
But those who, who outright oppose us, those who don't believe the same thing we believe, who want to stand in opposition and, and to, to rebuke us and to try and, and to discuss with us how we're wrong, that's not our call to come and to, to thump them with the Bible. That's not where we come and we, we have to try and beat them and clobber them into submission. Paul told Timothy, those who are in opposition, we need to, with humility, correct. We need to be given to gentleness, not to quarreling. That describes a servant of the Lord. Another thing that would describe a servant of the Lord is what's seen in Ephesians 4, and that is they are forgiving, they are forbearing, they are patient or long-suffering. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse, and in verse 2, we see that these passages, these, these words or these descriptions, they overlap themselves quite a bit. It says in verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bear with one another in love. And then in verse 32, it continues and says again, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. These sorts of attitudes, they help to smooth out those bumps and those obstacles that, that Satan loves to just kind of chuck into the path. As a congregation grows and as a congregation turns, uh, especially you take a congregation that maybe has not done things right in the past or they've gotten into a rut, as all congregations do, they, they've had a problem in their midst or, or something is, has, has been going on that makes them not as effective as they were either in the past or as they could be in that day, and they start to correct those things, they start to turn back towards that right path and start turning to walk more boldly and with more zeal in God's, uh, towards God. Satan, that is when he is just chomping at the bit to find something that he can throw in the way of that. Some error that maybe someone has done to another that is going to just disrupt this. And you've seen it. You, you've seen congregations that, that have split. And, and, and I, I think of one not far from, from us where there's three sound, at one time, three sound congregations within the same community. And it was all because of bad blood. It was because of people who just didn't get along with one another. That doesn't sound like the attitude that God wants us to have towards our brethren. That sounds like an attitude that is, that is tripped up and stumbling over those blocks that Satan has put in the way and where that congregation cannot function to its full potential. We need to have an attitude that smooths out those bumps, that looks to our brother and doesn't think, well, they just they, they, they hate me and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to have anything to do with them. We've already talked about the fact that we need to start with love. And so we need to stand up to Satan. And we do that by, by allowing ourselves to, to forgive and, and to bear with the, the scruples of the weak, to, to bear with the infirmities that, that other people might place upon us and to do so with patience or long-suffering. That word, long-suffering, I think is such a better word than patience because it describes the fact that, number one, it's not a pleasant thing. It's a difficult thing, and it's something that we must do, not just for a day or two, but for a long time, for, for our lives as we work together. Now, these are things that we have seen in our attitudes towards God, our attitudes towards ourself, and our attitudes towards our brethren. But I want to end with one more thing, and that is our attitudes that we need to have towards the work that we are called Let's begin by noticing in 1 Timothy that we need to have a gratitude for this because it is a privilege, a privilege to work in the Lord's kingdom. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and Paul says in verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. When you think of everything that Paul went through and everything that he did, he viewed that as something that he was fortunate to be able to experience. In 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 9 and in verse 10, he says there, I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church, of, the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Paul is saying that it's the, by grace that we have this opportunity to work in the kingdom. So oftentimes people say, well, God's grace is what saves me. And that's true. His grace does save me. But that grace enables us to work. It enables us to do things, to move, to, to act, and to live within his kingdom. 
And we need to have a gratitude in that and view that as a privilege. And we also need to have an enthusiasm for that. Turn over just a few pages, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and look in verse 7. It says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And we take that passage, and rightfully so, we're looking at, at, at them, they were giving monetarily, but with everything that we give. We give of our time, and we give of our efforts, and we give of our money, but with everything we give, God loves those who do so with a cheerful attitude. It is an enthusiasm. It is something that we look forward to, to give for God. Nothing that we, then we see, nothing is so easy. Nothing is so easy that it cannot be done without reluctance. There's no job that, that, that has been given to us, no command, no, no nothing that God has, has given us to do that we can't do it without reluctance. That temptation is always there. But the flip side of that coin is true as well. There is not a single thing that God has called us to do that is so big, that is so difficult, that we can't do it without enthusiasm. We need to be eager. We need to be excited and zealous to work for the Lord. And we need to be diligent or industrious. We need to have an energy. Consider that what we, what, a few months ago we read from Nehemiah. It's been a few months back that, that uh, Luke came and spoke to us on, a, on a, a Sunday afternoon. And he spoke from Nehemiah chapter 4. We read there about those people in chapter 4 and verse 6 says, We built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. That was something that they had a desire to do. They were eager to do it, and they were put towards working. They were diligent in that. And when you go back and you read about all the things that they, that they encountered during that, you realize that it took energy. It took an effort, and it took a desire to do so. And in Colossians chapter 3, we read about the attitude that we oftentimes have in today's world. We have a hardiness to work for man, to go for man and to, to do a good job, and we receive a, our pay for that, and, and, and we have a desire to please our, our, our bosses in this day. But in Colossians 3 verse 23, Paul says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. You see this, this attitude that, that is easily and, and, and not wrong, to have an industriousness. I want to go and I want to work hard and, and I want to make my, my boss or my, my company proud. Paul is saying you have that attitude towards God, that I am here to work hard for him. You know, we don't need to be people. You know, I always remember when I worked with, with Holly's dad, he, we, we worked in excavation, and he would say there's some people like blisters. They show up when the work is done. That doesn't need to describe us. We don't need to be blisters. We need to be people that are looking for that opportunity to work. Proverbs 18 and verse 9 even describes the opposite of that. It describes the slothful man. And it says that the slothful man is even more destructive than those who come in with the intent to destroy. The one that does nothing, the one that sets back and is, and is not willing to be involved, does more damage than the one that actively comes in and tries, tries to destroy. We need to be, have this attitude towards our work. We need to take initiative. When we see things that need to be done, we don't need to be told over and over again and reminded of our constant responsibilities. We don't need to be prodded and prodded, but rather we need to look for opportunities and we need to step up and we need to do them. In 1 Timothy 4, in verse 14, Paul told Timothy, saying, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. So don't, don't let your ability that you have, don't just forget about it. When you see opportunity to use that ability, you use it. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 6, he said, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He has to remind Timothy there. We, don't need, we, we shouldn't be a people that continually need to be reminded over and over again. Hey, you've got something you can do. We need to have, be people that take the initiative. And we need to be people that do so with positivity. We're doing things without mumbling and grumbling. Remember we read that in Philippians 2. Uh, the chronic complainer, the person that, that might do the good, but they just never have something good to say about it. And all the time just going on about how hard it is and how, how, how negative the obstacles are in front of them. Uh, the, the, the work that we're trying to do, we're, we're living in a time where people aren't willing to listen and we live in a community where people are just, they're, they're either so set in their ways, this is old community with old money and old religion. And if we are constantly with that sort of attitude, then we are doing things with murmuring. We're doing things with grumbling. We're not having a faith or a trust in God. 
And we're certainly, if we're not, if that allows us not to move forward, not to work, then we're not having a love for God by keeping his commandments. We need to be positive and we need to persist. In John chapter 4, verse 34. John 4, verse 34. Listen to the words of, uh, here as Jesus speaks. He says, <clears throat> John four thirty four. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. <clears throat> to finish his work. We need to have stick to itiveness. That means not only are we patient, not only are we forbearing, and not only do we see and take initiative, we see something needs to be done and we're going to do it, but we're going to hang in there. We're going to stick to it. We're not going to give up. We're going to move and, and we have a goal in mind and we're not going to quit until we reach that goal. We read about this also in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 and in verse 12. That's what it says here. It says that if you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Those who, who walked and gave their entire life. Those who were willing to give up everything and to continue in that path. We, in, in having that attitude, then we can finally say, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. These, the, these attitudes, they are ideal attitudes. And they make for ideal working conditions among the members of the local church. Now, the truth is, every one of these attitudes is one that each of us individually and as a whole, we can work on. We can find areas where we can improve. And attitude improvement can be compared to the woodcutter as he sharpens his axe. Look at this passage with, for, for a moment with me in Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and in verse 10, it says, If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength, but wisdom brings success. It's a whole lot smarter to put an edge on that axe instead of trying to muscle and force our way through that wood. And the same thing is true with our work here. Our work can go smoother. Our work can be easier if we will hone our attitudes. Certainly the attitudes described in this lesson will help the cause of Christ in any congregation. They will improve our relationship with God. They will improve our relationship with ourselves and our brethren and our work. They will make us useful to the master, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 2. Useful to the master and prepared for every good work. Are we developing the right kind of attitudes this day to prepare ourselves for the work of the Lord? That work begins with his work in us to remove us from our sins, to add us to his body. He does this free of charge when we choose to follow him. In following him into his death by being baptized for the remission of, his, of our sins. In following him into his resurrection and into his ascension by becoming a new creature, walking in the spirit, bearing its fruit in our lives. This day, if you would like to join in with Christ as your king and experience the blessings that come by being a part of his kingdom, I encourage you to wait no longer. Come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.